coming to you since 1997 on KKUP Radio with over 250 guests and still going strong in their 12th year of weekly broadcasting, the International Taz and Paula Show brings to you expansive, engaging, and groundbreaking intensity on radio and now on the Internet airwaves today. Listen live every Thursday or visit Embracing Mother Earth's archives, exclusive articles, ask questions, and receive actual answers from guests anytime at TazAndPaulaShow.com. Taz and Paula's special guests are experts coming from all walks of life, energizing our lives with a passion that inspires and teaches us with each of their compelling personal life journeys, with roots from ancient wisdom and bridging it with modern science. We hope today's show touches the wisdom of your heart. And now, Taz and Paula. Well, good morning, everyone. We are so excited and honored to have our dear friend Greg Braden back with us today. New York Times best-selling author Greg Braden is internationally renowned as a pioneer in bridging science, ancient wisdom, and the real-world solutions for today. Yay! Following a successful career as a computer geologist for Phillips Petroleum during the, in the 1970s energy crisis, he worked as a senior computer systems designer with Martin Marietta Defense Systems during the final years of the Cold War. And in 1991, he became the first technical operations manager for Cisco Systems. You are now listening to the International Taz and Paula Show, and I'm Paula. And I'm Taz. For more than 27 years now, Greg has explored high mountain villages, remote monasteries, and forgotten texts to merge their timeless secrets with the best science of today. His discoveries are now shared in 33 countries and 38 languages through such paradigm-inspiring books as The God Code, The Divine Matrix, Fractal Time, and Deep Truth. His 207 bestseller, The Divine Matrix, was recently selected as a source for the made-for-television feature Entanglement and is now a textbook for college-level courses exploring new discoveries of science and our relationship to the world. Paula, you should see my home library. His books are lined up on the shelf with hundreds of turned-up corners. And now on the 28th of January, Greg releases his latest book, The Turning Point, Creating Resilience in a Time of Extremes. Well, like a true scientist, Greg zeroes in so keenly and identifies the cutting edge to make the difference in an individual's transformational experience uh, simply by loosening up the taught thinking processes, uh, creating new windows of thought, stimulating extra blood flow to the heart and brain that make for a brand new adventure well worth thinking about. So today, we do have good news regarding tough decisions. Yes, uh, well, Greg, you are been on one heck of a journey since uh, we've known you in the early 1990s. Welcome back to our show, and let's get on with it. There's a lot to talk well, about today. Good, good morning, good morning, Paula, and good morning, Taz. I want to say good morning to all of our listeners. This is um, well. This is my first time with you in the year 2014. And uh, I'm just thinking this is actually the very first interview I've done with this new book for 2014. So I'm excited and honored to be on the program. And I want to thank you wow. for, for inviting me back again. Oh, we feel wow. privileged. Well, this, you know, when I was looking at your new book, we got uh, a little bit <laughs> lucky and got to look at it. Um, to me, it looks like this book is something you've been working on for several years because you were talking about this Oh, I don't know how, how many years ago when we saw you in Santa Cruz with Dr. Bruce Lifton. It seemed like you were uh, at the beginnings in the fringe of this book when you were speaking at that point. Well, the the book is a reflection of our lives. Um, and I believe this is Paula that I'm speaking with right now? Yes, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, it's a reflection of, of our lives and, uh, and what's happening in our lives in the world. And from that perspective... Um, it has been years in the making, although the the experiences that uh, and and the case histories and the true life accounts 
that I, I share in the book, those uh, are, are cumulative, although the events that have really brought it together uh, have happened just within the last uh, last year, last two years. The, the Can I just talk about the, the book a little bit? Are you okay if I do that? Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's why, you, that's so why the, you're here. <laughs> well, I, I didn't know if you had a list of questions that we were going to go through, yeah. but I'd, I'd like to lay the, the foundation, I think, a little bit before maybe we do that. The title of the book is The Turning Point. The subtitle is Creating Resilience in a Time of Extremes. And that's precisely what it is that I think makes this book so timely. Uh, the best minds of our time are now telling us that we are, in fact, living what they are calling a time of extremes. So it, it doesn't necessarily have to be bad things that are happening or even good things, for that matter, but big things, really big things happening in our lives. And although we can break them down into a number of, of different categories, there are three main topics that are all converging in our in our world uh, and in our lives right now because we can no longer separate the two. We can no longer separate the big stuff happening in the world from what's happening in our everyday lives. So climate change is a very good example. Uh, a lot of people, when we hear about climate change, we think of you know things happening on the other side of the world or we think of it simply as a change in the weather. But the, the reality is that the impact of climate change, it is affecting industry, it's affecting jobs in our local communities, it is affecting uh, the cost that we pay for the fuel and for the tickets that gets us on our public transportation back and forth to work and school every day. It's affecting the, the price we pay for food at the dinner table. And for many parts of the world, uh, Taz and Paula, the, the shift in these vital resources, food and energy, for example, uh, it is enough to put them beyond the reach of the average family in, in many parts of the world. Fortunately, it's happening less here in the States, uh, but, but that is a fact. Another, uh, another area where we see these extremes is with the economy of the world that actually ties into the climate change. Uh, I think we all know that something, something's up with the economy, and depending on who you talk to, you get different stories about what it is. And the reason I felt it was important to, to share it in this book is that this generation right now, we are experiencing uh, an economic climate that no one in our lifetime has ever seen. So we have no point of reference. Our grandparents, uh, actually, uh, we would have to go back to the lives of our grandparents the 1930s to even get a semblance of what the economic conditions are that are converging in our lives now. So, so the fact is that we are living a, a time of extremes, and what that has created is a new normal in our lives, and for many people that is news. A new normal is emerging. And the, the reality is that the world that you and I, this generation, uh, these years in our lives, the world that we've grown to trust, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, that we believe we mastered, we've become accustomed to, that world disappeared and no one really told us. And this is important. There, there was no expose on a, a glossy magazine, uh, you know, staring back at us from a, an airport newsstand. There was no special on CNN or BBC. No one told us that the world of the past has disappeared and a new world is emerging. And while it, some people kind of, of chuckle when they hear that, the, the consequences are profound. Uh, and the reason is because... There has been a reluctance and, in many cases, a resistance in mainstream media to acknowledge the facts of what's unfolding in our lives right now. Many people are simply waiting for things to get back to normal. They're waiting for things to return to the way that we are accustomed to seeing them in terms of the economy, of jobs, uh, of education, of what families used to mean to us, all of these things that come together to create our everyday lives. They're clinging to an idea of a world that no longer exists, and they put their lives on hold. People are literally waiting to get married. They're literally waiting to have families. <clears throat> Excuse me. They're waiting to build new homes. They're waiting to send their, their children to school until things, quote, settle down and get back to normal, unquote. And the consequence of that is that they're waiting for a world that no longer exists. And this is where the struggle comes in in their lives. Until we are given the opportunity or we take the opportunity 
to embrace the fact that a new world is emerging, and this is where it's, it's, it's very important, to mourn the passing of the world that we've known in the past, to mourn the passing of that world and let it go so that we can make room for the new opportunities that are emerging in, in our lives right now that look very different from what we've seen in the past. Until we do that, that's where a lot of the struggle comes in. So that's the, the book is, is first laying down the facts uh, that substantiate this, this time of extremes and this new normal. And the good news is, uh, is the title of the book, The Turning Point. The, the experts are really good at telling us about very frightening tipping points of change. I know we've all heard tipping points, uh, the time when the, the climate extremes become so bad, for example, that, uh, you know, the, that we can't even live in, in our own world, or the time when the debt of our nation or the debt of our world is so bad that the economy collapses. We've all heard about those things. Those are the tipping points of extremes. But what the experts do not tell us is that before you ever reach a tipping point of no return, you must pass through the turning point that allows us to move away from those frightening tipping points. It, it's nature's way of giving us the opportunity to choose again. The key is that we've got to recognize what those turning points are all about, uh, and that's where the resilience to our time of extremes comes from. So in, um, uh, in a nutshell, that is the, the essence of the book, and, and now that we have that foundation, we can tie into that as we go through our, our program today. Greg, uh, you've you been around the world more uh, than once. <laughs> what is your take on what is happening with individuals at the moment as far as holding up with all of these changes that are afoot, um, you know, living through this time of global shifting and economy uh, moving, uh, escalating and everything? So what, I mean, are people kind of getting what you're talking about? Are they realizing that things aren't going to shift back are they, you know, what's really happening? Are they, are they, you know, uh, creating more communities to support each other? What's really taking place out there? Well, that's a really good question, uh, Paul. And what I'd like to do, if uh, I'd like to begin the answer with a story, if if I can. Uh, I think you you know many of our listeners know my wife and I live in a rural community in in northern New Mexico, um, an hour from the nearest town and four hours from the nearest airport. And so we're, we're kind of out in the, in the sticks a little bit. And uh, late last year, we were on a drive through northern New Mexico into southern Colorado, and uh, all very, you know, very rural areas. We passed through a, a small mining town and stopped at the uh, convenience store for, for gas. And I went in and, and asked the, the woman behind the, uh, the cash register just what you've asked me. I said, you know, how are things in this in this town? It's a very small town. I said, how are things here? How's the economy here? How are people doing? And she didn't even look up from the the cash register. She she just kept counting money. She said, do you really want to know? And I said, sure. You know, I wouldn't have asked if I didn't want to know. <laughs> and then she did look up, and she said, when those mines are open and people are working, life is good. She said, the money's good, security is good, people have the money to send their kids to school and to build new homes. And she said, when the mines close, life is hell. And that's what was happening right now. And I, and I said, well, you know, how many people could possibly be employed by that, that single company, that one mine? She said, when they're open, 600 people work uh, three shifts 24-7 in, in those mines. I said, 600 people, how many people live in your town? She says, there's 1,800 people in this town. So a third of the town relied upon the mines or relies on the mines for their, their income, and, and they're out of work. And I said, wow, that's got to be really tough. And I said, what's everyone doing? She said, well, we're waiting for things to get back to normal. We're waiting for those mines to open. And while we're waiting, people do anything they can. They bale hay, they help their neighbors you know, fix the roof, they take care of their kids, they help with the gardens, fix cars, whatever, waiting for their jobs to come back. And I said, well, how long have the mines been closed? She said, nine years. Nine years. Wow. Those people put their lives on hold waiting for things to get back to normal, waiting for the old normal to return. And as I walked away from that convenience store back in my truck and finished our, our trip, I couldn't help but think in, in those few brief moments 
uh, I just experienced a microcosm in that little town of what's happening in much of the world. Because the mainstream has been reluctant and in some cases resistant to say that the world has changed in the way and to the degree that it has, people simply aren't aware that that's happened. They know something's going on, but they, they tend to see it as, uh, as a temporary speed bump in the road of life, and they're, because that's what we're accustomed to doing. Uh, and they're waiting for things to get back to normal. And those that are doing that, they're clinging to an idea and the beliefs of a way of thinking, a way of living, a world that they thought they understood pretty well and where they fit into that world. They're clinging to that. And the fact is that it doesn't fit into the world of now. And this is where the struggle comes in. So they are struggling. They're struggling with their finances. They're struggling with the economy. They're struggling to keep their homes struggling to help their kids, uh, again, to put them in the schools and things like that. On the one hand, on the other hand, uh, there are people who realize that the world of the past is gone, uh, and for a lot of different reasons. And it was a good world. We learned from it. And they are embracing the new world that's here, the opportunities that are very different from those of the past. And we'll talk about it in this program today. And they are literally thriving. They are thriving to a greater degree in the new reality because they've learned to embrace what it brings rather than trying to make the old ideas and their old ways of living and thinking fit, trying to impose them into this new world. And that's, it's a subtle and a powerful difference. So, so that's the story that I wanted to begin with, Taz. But to answer your question, I have been all over the world. Uh, I've been on every continent except Antarctica. I haven't been to Antarctica yet. Uh, in the last five years. And what I've found is that when you leave the borders of America, uh, there's actually a greater degree of acceptance of the things that we're talking about here than we find in, in our own country. And I think the media probably has a lot to do with that because so many people do rely. We're busy. Everybody's lives are, are busy. We're full. You know, we're trying to get back and forth to work, take care of the kids, um, you know, some, some people are working multiple jobs, uh, you know, two and three jobs. And we rely on these brief sound bursts from corporate media in the network news to tell us about our world and what's happening in our world. And the story that we're being told uh, in, in our country right now, um, I'm, I'm just going to say it's incomplete at best. Uh, we tend to focus on certain specific areas and leave other things out. And when I'm in South America or when I'm in Mexico or when I'm in Australia or uh, Southeast Asia or Europe, what I find is that the access to news media and news feeds from other countries uh, gives so many more additional perspectives. So I'm not going to say they're right, wrong, good, or bad. Now, I don't want to judge them. I'm just going to say they're very different and, and I think that goes a long way to molding the way a population responds to, to the changes in their world. So for many of these uh, countries, the, the ideas uh, that are slower to take hold here in the States are already well entrenched in, uh, in, in a lot of these other places, and we can talk about what those are as well. Uh, that was a long answer to your short question. <laughs> well, in the United, within the United States, even I've seen, it, I've noticed a difference with the media. It, we're sequestered, sequestered when our local areas. We don't even hear what's happening in another state as much as we did a few years back. It's, it's no, so we don't. Local. You know, I was. It, it's true. I was in uh, Zurich, Switzerland, uh, doing a, a seminar uh, a few years ago. And it happened to be a time when there was a meeting there that was called the G20. It's the 20 most powerful economic nations in the world. Uh, they were meeting in Zurich. Uh, so, of course, it was big news there. And uh, while the term economy, I know for a lot of uh, people, when they hear the word economy, it, their eyes kind of glaze over and it sounds either technical or, or boring because they think it's all about money. And you know, while money can be a part of an economy. Uh, economies have existed for a long time with, with no money. So it, it doesn't have to be about money. It's about us. It's about people and the way we work together, the way 
we share the things that we need in our lives every day, vital resources, food, energy, water, medicine, uh, ideas. That's what an economy is all about. So I was amazed when I was in Zurich, uh, the G20 was meeting, and they were making huge decisions uh, about where the economy of the, the modern nations are going and where our world is going uh, that were common knowledge in the communities w- where I was staying. And when I would phone home here to the States and ask, and you know, just ask people, say, have you heard what's happening? Are you following this at all? They weren't getting any of this at all. They were getting a lot of news about uh, Hollywood celebrities whose lives had taken a nosedive <laughs> and whose marriages had taken a nosedive. But that's important too. And I, and you know, I don't like to see I don't like to see my favorite people getting divorced, <laughs> the rock stars and movie stars. But but the the point is that that kind of information was overriding these big policy decisions that and everywhere I went in Europe, everybody was talking about. It. They all knew that these, these decisions were, were big decisions that were being made. Uh, and that was just an example. That is an example of, of how, the, how different the media is. I was in Australia over 9-11. That's a, a really good example. And I had the opportunity for news feeds from out uh, Australia as well as uh, Western Europe and Southeast Asia and the States. So they were all showing the same pictures and the commentary that went with the pictures was so very, very different. The story that I was getting was so very different between uh, uh, between the Western media and, and the rest of the world. So it, I, I know you've probably heard, I know our listeners have heard before, it, it's good for, for people in America to to experience beyond our borders, other people, other cultures, other nations, and to see how they think. And I think one of the benefits of that is the world seems a lot smaller when we do that. And also, we open ourselves up to to new ideas that other people sometimes are already practicing. So we get to see what works and what doesn't. And the things that don't work for other people, maybe we don't want to do them here. And the things that work for other people, we can do them a lot. So, so I'm talking in generalities. I'd like to go into some specifics here. Are you okay if I do that? Sure. Is that okay? Yes. Okay. They, so I've got a delay coming on the, the phone here. Oh. I, I apologize. I think there's a, a bounce off the satellite here. So when we talk about the extremes, uh, I know there are a lot of communities uh, throughout the world that have been impacted by climate extremes. So we're, in the past, uh, in our lifetime, we're accustomed to seasons coming and going at relatively uh, uh, specific times and we're accustomed to rain coming at certain times and temperatures dropping uh, and rising at certain times so that we know when to plant, when to grow our food, things like that. Well, all that's changed, and I know our listeners know that. And for many people uh, in the Western world, they continue acting surprised when these extremes happen, when we have a big storm uh, that wipes out an entire coastal community or when we have the floods uh, that are, are wiping out, uh, uh, you know, homes and businesses and schools that are built right next to the rivers and the creeks. And what I'm finding is in other parts of the world, they now have incorporated these extremes into the thinking of their everyday lives. This is a form of resilience. Resilience uh, means different things to different people. Uh, historically, it has been about the ability to bounce back or to return to a normal way of functioning after some traumatic event. That's the way we typically think of resilience. But there's a, a new expanded form of resilience that's taking hold. And it is a resilience where we think and live every day in a way that allows us to thrive in the extremes because we allow for the extremes in our lives. In other words, we're adapting to the new normal rather than waiting for things to get back to the old normal or rather than trying to force the conditions of the world back to the old normal. So I'm saying that because this is a form of resilience that I'm seeing. Uh, What people are doing is they're recognizing their times of year, for example, when the supplies of food to the grocery stores from markets, seashore markets, uh, aren't going to, they're not going to be regular. They're going to be disrupted because the weather is going to be bad. That's the new normal. So what they're doing 
is they are cultivating uh, more local uh, organic gardens uh, where the food is going directly to the restaurants. And here in the States, we call it uh, farm the table. And I know in, in California and a lot of places in the West are seeing that, and also in the, the East Coast are seeing it more. So what they're doing is they're decentralizing uh, the, the resource of food, for example, becoming less dependent on transportation uh, you know, from other, other countries, blueberries from Chile in the middle of November, for example, um, relying on transportation with a huge carbon footprint to get them to our markets. And when the weather is bad and those things simply don't show up, what they're doing is they're growing them in their own backyards, and they've got a, a more constant supply of, of the seasonal foods that, that make sense uh, for that time of year. So they're adapting to the new normal of the extremes by becoming more reliant on local sources of the food. Uh, same thing is happening with energy. Regional power grids uh, have been hit by huge storms, uh, some of them like the hurricanes on the, the East Coast, some of them uh, uh, like uh, floods and earthquakes that we've seen in other parts of the world. Uh, so the communities are becoming less reliant on regional forms of energy and more reliant on uh, local renewable forms of energy to supplement. They can't completely replace it right now. They're still reliant to some degree on, on that regional energy, but when, when that power goes down or when those gas lines are, are cut off, we live here in northern New Mexico two years ago in January. Uh, the, the natural gas lines from Texas into New Mexico were, were shut off, and they were off for uh, between 10 days and two weeks, I believe, and the coldest temperatures, record temperatures, in northern New Mexico, and people were hurt. Uh, livestock froze and died. Chickens froze and died. Uh, people's homes uh, were, were damaged from the, the, the frozen pipes when they thawed, and then they, they burst in the water that had burst. Uh, schools had no heat. And uh, uh, people in New Mexico said that's the last time that's ever going to happen. So they are now relying more upon local sustainable sources of energy uh, they'll use that natural gas when it's available. When it's not, uh, they won't be hurt the way they have in the past. They're adapting to uh, the extremes uh, that are creating a new normal and in that way becoming more resilient to the changes. So these are just a couple of examples uh, of what I'm seeing here in the States, but I'm seeing a lot more when we, we leave our, our borders. So uh, I think Europe uh, has always been a little bit more community-oriented just because of uh, the proximity, so many people in, in a smaller area. Uh, I think they've always had more of a, of a leaning, at least the rural communities, toward farm-to-table and local organic produce and going to the markets, uh, Western Europe. So it, to, to them, I think it's a little easier to, to think along those lines and make that transition. But there are other, other parts of the world where uh, they're accustomed to – the communities are separated by large expanses of – uh, of empty space, and they're accustomed to uh, relying on supply chains from one point to another that, that simply aren't as reliable as they used to be. So these are some examples of, um, of community resilience, uh, adapting to the new normal, the new normal being defined by some of the extremes that we've talked about of, of climate and the economy and things like that, uh, in a way so that so that we can thrive in that new normal. And the book, uh, I, I talk about that uh, quite a bit through case histories and true life experiences, but it all then comes back to the personal resilience, and, and I want to spend some time talking about that as well. So, um, but uh, Taz, did that answer your question about how, how other communities and other people in other parts of the world maybe are responding to what we're saying here? Yes, and I... And I was also thinking about new technology. Are, are people in other countries using um, new technology, you know, ways that they don't have to use necessarily fossil fuel and, and that kind of thing? Because that, you know, that shakes our earth up when we're using a lot of, of that um, CO2 stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that CO2 stuff. You know, it's, it's interesting. I think the world wants to move away. For the people of the world want to move away 
from fossil fuels in the way that we've used them in the past. <clears throat> and I have to tell you, as a, a former geologist, um, I, I've developed a deep appreciation for everything this Earth has to offer. And fossil, uh, fossil fuel deposits have truly been a gift that I think it could have been used in a better way. Uh, when we think about it, you know, oil is only a problem when it's burned. It's the burning of oil, believing we need to burn oil f for these fuels that creates the problems. But I, I was amazed, uh, Taz and, and Paula, when I was researching the book, uh, I, I came across the scientific uh, uh, pub publications, uh, peer-reviewed scientific articles. They were listing over 6,000 products that we rely upon in one form or another almost every day of our lives, all based in, uh, in the use of, of petroleum and, and oil. And some of it comes about in ways that you wouldn't even think about. And some of it's obvious. You know, obviously, you know, the, the things that burn, fuel oil and things like that. But uh, in the, the medical industry, um, not only the medicines themselves, but the, the containers and the way we transport medicine and the tubes and the wires uh, that wow. allow us to, to keep people alive in and, and the cosmetics industry, which some would argue is, is not as vital, but there are all different kinds of cosmetics based in petroleum products. And the finishes that we use to keep our, our homes safe uh, and to keep them uh, resilient to, to the weather uh, and the, the way that we process and store and ship our food and even the way that the food is, is harvested and the way that the food is planted and the way the food is watered, it's all based in, uh, in petroleum-based products. They only become a, a problem, I think, in the eyes of uh, the kinds of things we're talking about here is when we burn them and release the, the uh, incomplete combustion into the air and the byproducts of the CO2. So if we could find ways of creating energy uh, to replace that, uh, you know, for things like electricity, the, the fact is that we are still going to be using, I think, petroleum for a very long time because we've never found another, we've never been able to synthesize another product, and we've never found uh, a product in nature that has the properties that make, um, that make the petroleum-based and the fossil-based products what they are. We simply haven't been able to find those yet. So, I mean, think about if if we, <laughs> it's, if you take fossil fuels out of the equation, we essentially are, are living in, in the Stone Age again. Uh, I mean, the, the case for my cell phone and the case for my computer and the covering for the telephone I'm even talking to you on right now, it, it's a absolutely mind-boggling. So uh, my sense is, uh, is there, uh, are people wanting to go to, to something beyond fossil fuels. When it comes to fueling our cars and our homes and creating electricity, the answer is yes. I think the world wants to. Uh, I think industry and corporations are, uh, are resistant to that, obviously, um, because to them it, it makes it look like they're, they're going to lose. And I, I think there's a way to make the transition to other forms of energy where, where corporations become a part of the answer rather than being sidelined, because they're the ones that have the money for the research and the technology that, that it takes to get there. You know, Japan is, is a, a, a wonderful example. Uh, precisely what we're talking about here, Japan bought into the ideas of nuclear fuel. They, they had, I believe, it's 53 or 54 nuclear power plants on their island nation uh, that were working pretty good up to a point in time, and we all know about Fukushima, which is an ongoing uh, issue right now, the response, the Japanese response to Fukushima was to shut down all of their nuclear reactors and say, we will walk away from nuclear energy um, and we will embrace fossil fuel technology. The problem is they have no fossil fuels on their island, so now they are entirely dependent upon importing some form of fossil fuel to keep their economy going. Uh, and, and I think now there's the pendulum is kind of swinging back the other way. I think they're, they're now looking for a mix, again, is what I've heard recently. But um, uh, there is, a, I think, a desire 
to move away from the fossil fuels. And the reality is, and people talk about this all the time, people eh, talk about this in the book. First, people say, well, what about free energy? And I have to tell you, I'll be very honest with you, Taz and and Paula and and to our listeners, uh, I'm a scientist. I was trained as a scientist. Um, uh, I've seen some of the most advanced technology in in the world. Uh, I was a member of the Tesla Society, and I've seen Tesla's devices, working models of his actual devices, the the Keeley, John Keeley, who was a contemporary of Tesla and his devices. So I've seen principles that look like they may be able to create the kind of energy that I think many people have envisioned. The the fact is, for me, personally, I have yet to see a true, truly a free energy device that simply works on its own perpetually, uh, and I've yet to see any of that technology that's at a point where we could rely on it uh, sustainably, day in and day out, in all the weather conditions for all, all the vital needs that we have today. Um, I've yet to see a form of energy that we want to rely upon for the, the power powering the equipment in the operating room, you know, in the middle of, of surgery, or powering air traffic control towers, you know, during very delicate times of, of takeoff and landing, or the communications for the, the world's financial and, and data gathering and information systems. I have I've yet to see that technology. Uh, is it possible? Absolutely. I believe it is possible. Will we see it at some point in the future? Uh, I feel certain that we will. Is it here right now? The answer from what I've seen, my perspective, is that it's not. And so that means the next question, what about renewables? And while I, I would love to be able to say to our, our listeners today that uh, solar is the answer, or wind is the answer, or if geothermal or hydro is the answer, that technology simply is not at the place where we can use it uh, on, a, uh, on a global scale and the way that many people have envisioned. I think it is at a place where we can supplement, and I mentioned this earlier, different communities, different parts of the world, uh, it makes more sense to use some forms of renewables than others. So here in, in the desert southwest, for example, northern New Mexico, Colorado, Arizona, parts of California, Utah, we get a lot of sunshine over 300 days a year. The sun shows for some number of hours a day. So, so solar makes sense here. Uh, I was just in Copenhagen, uh, Denmark, and as our plane was landing in, in the harbor, they've got huge windmills uh, that they have in the harbor that are supplementing their, their city's power. And I know in Southern California you see a lot of the, the wind farms that are there. Uh, so there are places where, where it makes sense to do things like that to supplement the, the regional power that, that's there right now. Um, in the book, I talk about other forms of, of power. I think what we're seeing is a progression. We're going to wean ourselves from fossil fuels. And, and it's already happened, actually. A lot of people, our listeners, probably aren't even aware of this, but oil, as we've known it, is already becoming a thing of the past. And the world is moving away from oil as we have known it, to uh, something that is called LNG, liquefied natural gas. It's still a petroleum product. Uh, It still comes from wells in the earth. But the good news is that it burns 50% cleaner, producing 50% less carbon dioxide than the oil that we're seeing, and certainly the coal that generates uh, over 40% of our nation's electricity right now. Um, 40% or more, depends on where we're looking. So I think 2014, 2015, you haven't seen a lot about this in mainstream news, but we are moving uh, into this era of liquefied natural gas. It's not perfect. It's a step in the right direction. And I think that will be the bridge that holds us over. Uh, Liquefied natural gas, it's less expensive. Um, It's 50% cleaner. Uh, It's easier to ship. Uh, It's less expensive to, to produce. And the contracts, the long-term contracts, are already being signed or have been signed for places like Japan, for the Western world to supply them with this, this stepping stone, this bridging technology. So is it good, bad, right, or wrong? Um, you know, I don't know the answer to that, Taz and Paula. And could we, could we go to free energy if, if that was our choice? I believe if it was made to be a priority and if the world said this is what we want, 
and the the leaders of the world uh, made it a priority. Uh, I, I think it's possible to see it much sooner than much later. The reality, to be honest with you and our, our listeners right now, I don't think that's the path that we're on in our lifetime. I think we're going to see these bridging technologies or these stepping stones that are moving in the right direction. They're just It's not the sudden jump to the world that we used to see in Star Trek and the Jetsons and, <laughs> and, and things like that. So, again, that was a, a very long answer to a short question, and I went off on a couple of tangents. But um, the, Do you believe the we're moving? That, Do you believe that we're moving fast enough? Fast enough in terms of what? Um, keeping the world stable. Here I'm looking. I mean, I don't, I'm not looking backwards. I'm looking frontwards. But keeping um, the economy going and keeping, you know, able everything stable in the world, do you think we're moving quickly and fast enough in a new technology? I, I think the world, the, the technology, this is, and again, I, talk, I do talk about this in the book. It's so interesting to me when, I'm just going to share another story, and I know that you and some of our listeners are old enough to remember this story. There was uh, a speech that was made in 1962, and in about 36 world, words, the then-President John Kennedy stated the words that changed forever, the, the, the direction of the world and, and the future of humankind. What he said was that we choose by the end of this decade, to place a man on the moon and, and bring him back to Earth safely. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Kennedy said this in a speech. He said it in 1962, and we had our first moon landing in 69. It was less than 10 years. Less. It happened before the end of the decade, before he even the, the timeline he had given. And people ask me all the time, when I used to work in the defense and the aerospace industry, they said, Greg, you know, how did that happen so quickly? How did we develop the technology, the, the fuel, uh, the, the rocket itself? How did we understand the, about the orbits and the trajectories and, and the materials for the, the space suit and, to, you know, to, to make tang <laughs> so that the or, uh, astronauts could have orange juice in, in space? How did we learn to do all that so quickly? And the answer to that question is the reason I'm, I'm sharing it here. The answer is, we didn't have to discover all of those things after Kennedy made his speech. Most of that technology was already developed. The key is that no one in a position of power and leadership had ever made it a priority to bring the technologies together and apply them to a project like going to the moon. No one had done that. And when he gave the speech, that was the, the mandate. It gave permission for for the funding it gave permission for the cooperation between the military and and the academic institutions and and private industry and and government uh industry all of it, it opened the door for all or the floodgates uh, by some respects for all of these entities to come together in a way that had never happened in the past because he made it a priority and the reason i'm sharing that is because in many ways we're in a similar position today. The technology, this is the answer to your question, the technology for the things that we're talking about, for the kind of energy that we're talking about, for example, uh, that technology, the principles already exist. But no one in the position of power and, and leadership, and I'm not saying it has to be a, a president of, of our country or any country. I'm saying it, it's just a consensus. N we haven't come together and made these things a priority, just like uh, feeding the world. This is a, another perfect example. We have enough food to feed every mouth of every man, every woman, every child on this planet. At least right now, we do. The, the food is not the problem. There is no shortage of food. It's the thinking that prevents that food from getting where it's needed no one in the position of, of high power and authority has ever made it a priority on, on a large enough scale to say this is where we're going to go as a world. We're no longer going to have this kind of hunger in our, in our world any longer. It simply hasn't happened. People have tried. Organizations have tried. But it hasn't happened at, at the level where it has become that priority. So uh, I think in many respects history is repeating itself. 
uh, in, in that vein, and that we have the technology available uh, and we, we understand the principles. It's about coming together and, and merging our, uh, our efforts cooperatively to achieve something that we all believe is, is worth achieving. And I, I think this is part of what our time of extremes is all about right now. We're at a crossroads. Well, we have- how, how are we going... How are we going to provide energy for this planet for, you know, for the next 200 years? How are we going to feed? Uh, well, the population of what, uh, 10, 10 billion people by the year, I think, 2050 of, at, at current rates. How are we going to feed those people? Fresh water is disappearing. What, what do we do about those things? This is a time of extremes, a new normal that's forcing us to think in ways that we've never had to in the past because, because the conditions are mandating us to think differently. So we are, I think what we're witnessing, history will look back to this generation, and they'll say this is the generation that chose to come together as a global community uh, to look less at the borders between nations as we have in the past and more as a, a cooperative community. We still have nations and honor culture and customs and traditions, but we're learning to work cooperatively across those borders uh, for mutual needs in ways that we simply have never had to do in the past. And the extremes are the catalyst, I think, that's, that's driving a lot of this. So the principle of the book, by first acknowledging that we are even in a time of extremes, that's news for some people, so that's, that's a big step for some. By acknowledging that we're in a time of extremes and that the time of extremes is creating a new normal, that is a big piece. And once we recognize and we actually accept that in our lives, then we find the key to resilience is to adapt to the new normal. And so the, the book, uh, last three chapters of the book are all about how to do precisely that. On a personal level, what is personal resilience? How do we deal with this as individuals? These huge changes in our lives. How do we deal with this as, as individuals, as families, as communities? Uh, and then uh, as, as nations, because the same principles then apply. And for me, that, that's the good news. Uh, the good news is that nature does provide the turning point that allows us to move away from those frightening predictions, the frightening outcomes that so many people have tunnel vision. They're focused on that, and they're missing the good news is that all of these extremes open the door to a powerful new way of thinking and living. And people who have accepted this are, are literally thriving. Uh, and before we leave, I, I, I promise I want to give a, a, an example of just that. But uh, I'm going to stop there just for a minute, and we'll catch our breaths because we just covered a lot of ground. <laughs> well, I, I wanted to uh, give an example of what's happening to us locally in California. Um, we're having a drought, and this drought could really bring us down economically. And uh, our governor made a speech and said, this is time for us to look for new technology to have reusable water, to perhaps use water from the ocean. This is time for us to, you know, find solutions. So that's a prime example of, you know. You, you know, I guess I heard that just over this weekend, uh, that your governor, at least that's when I, I heard the excerpt. I'm not sure when the speech was actually given, but I heard that. And that is a perfect segue for the example that, uh, that I actually wanted to share today before we leave, uh, in our rural communities here in northern New Mexico, we are also experiencing uh, a drought. It's the worst drought in 25 years. Um, we've had them in the past, but this one is, is it has been almost continuous for seven years now. Um, we do have a little rain in what's called the monsoon season in, in July. And, um, and for us, after that, uh, you know, that, that's about it. And for the first time, I'm seeing my neighbors, uh, local ranchers, who have had uh, herds of, of cattle, you know, for three or four generations now, are giving up the business. They're selling the herds, and they're they're learning other ways to make a living because the land simply will not sustain the way they've, they've made a living in the past. So one of my neighbors, I talk about this man in in the book. His name is Ken. Uh, was a builder uh, of beautifully uh, ecologically sound and sustainable homes here in, in the desert southwest. He'd done it for over 30 years. He had a crew uh, of 25, sometimes 35, 40 people working under him 
Uh, they depended on him for their livelihoods. And they embarked on a, the biggest project they'd ever started, uh, and they began this project in the year 2008. And I think most of our listeners <coughs> will remember that uh, 2008 was the, the year not only of the economic downturn, but also the downturn in housing as well. Uh, and Ken suddenly found himself with uh, the projects fell through. He had no way to provide for his crew, for his own family. And he was truly the crossroads in his life. And, um, and I, I know Ken. I've talked to him about this. And, and he, he tells a story. He says he woke up. He bolted up in the middle of the night, like, you know, 3, 3.30 in the morning. And he was saying, what am I going to do? And he asked himself a question. And the, and the question was this, what do people need in the world right now? Now, this is a really powerful question. He didn't ask, what can I do? Or how am I going to take what I've known in the past and make it fit into this world? He changed the question. He said, what do people need? And, and the realization was that people need uh, to be able to, to feed themselves and, uh, and find water for themselves. Those are two things that people need. In the past, maybe they needed homes. He said they don't need homes anymore. They need to be able to grow their own food. Now, this is a, a, a very subtle and powerful shift in thinking. Um, Taz and uh, Paul, the last time we talked, I think, it was with regard to a book that I had written, I think it was in 2011, and the title of the book was called Deep Truth. And it was about the new discoveries, scientific discoveries that change the way we think of our relationship to the world and ourselves. Uh, for 300 plus years, science has, has given us a story of separation, that we're separate from our bodies, we're separate from the earth, we're separate from one another, and, and that nature is based upon a model of competition and conflict. And the world we have today is largely a result of that. New discoveries have changed all that, showing that nature is based upon cooperation and that we're deeply connected to our bodies, to one another, and to the earth. That shift in thinking is the basis for the question that Ken asked himself when he bolted up in bed that night. He didn't ask, what can I get from the world that exists? Rather, he said, what can I give or what can I share? Or what can I contribute to the world that's emerging? What do people need right now? So Ken took his insights from that night, and he began to design, prototype, and build an innovative system of raised bed gardens. They're covered raised bed, self-watering, self-heating gardens um, that he began to, uh, to implement here in, first in northern New Mexico. They are modular. And they can, they can be as small as 12 inches by 12 inches and sit on a patio uh, in a high-rise in New York City where people have no yard. Or they can be 4 feet by 8 feet, and they can be strung together, a number of them. My wife and I have two of them in, in our yard right now. And the key is these gardens will grow food every month of the year, no matter what the temperature. Uh, we routinely get 25 and 30 below zero at night. We're 8,000 8, feet above sea level. Uh, in January, December and January. And these gardens, right now in January, they're growing broccoli, they're growing chard, they're growing lettuce. Wow. Ken has had so much fun building these gardens and sharing them. Now he, he's exporting them all over the world. I doubt, I don't want to speak for him, but I doubt that he'll, he'll ever build another house because <laughs> he feels so good about what he's doing. But here's the thing. He changed the question, and this is a form of the resilience, the personal resilience that we talk about. He let go of the old ideas of what it meant for him to make a living based on what he knew, on his experience, on his certificates, on his certification, on his education. He didn't say, what's my degree in, or what have I done for the last 30 years? He let go of all of that, and he simply said, what do people need, and what can I contribute to that need. That is a powerful shift that is allowing people to thrive in the new normal. And I'm going to invite our listeners, if you're one of the people, if you're at a crossroads in your life right now, if you can 
just for a moment, forget about what your degree is in or your certificate or what your training or your background is in because everyone has a passion, something that we've probably done all of our lives that we're really good at that we don't make a living at. Ask yourself what your family, what your neighbors, what your community needs right now in the presence of these changes and how that passion of yours can fit into that need. And I think you'll be amazed. It opens the door to a vast array of possibilities that people never thought of, many people never thought of. And in the worst economic downturn in 80 years, Ken and his crew now are, are thriving. And that's just, that's just one story. There, I have time for one more story. There, we have a, a na- <laughs> another neighbor. Another neighbor is a, a nuclear physicist at Los Alamos National Labs. They cut his funding. He sat at the dinner table and, and had a conversation with his family. And his family, who he didn't know because he spent all his time at work. His wife he and he had grown apart. They were still living together, but they'd grown apart. His kids were growing. He didn't know much about their lives. And he said, look, we have an opportunity here. What do you want to do? Do you want me to go and get another job doing what I've done since you've known me all of your life? Or do you want to try something new? The family voted to let the technical job go. They went, pooled their resources. They bought a herd of llamas. And they are now raising this beautiful herd of, of amazing llamas they brought from Peru. They get up in the morning. They care for the animals together. They feed them. They water them. They shear their wool uh, a couple of times a year. And in the summer months, they have little backpacks that they put on these. And when tourists come, the tourists lead their own llama on a little backpacking trek up into the mountains here in, in northern New Mexico for a camp and a lunch and then back uh, you know, later that day or, or the next day. The point is the family is doing this together. They are closer than they've ever been. They're healthier, less stressed, and all they did was change the question. What can I give to the world that is emerging, and, and where is my passion right now? So Craig, I think as, as yeah. We're, we're, we're really, you know, we really are so fortunate at this incredible time on earth to be given the, the opportunity to recreate ourselves and in turn recreate a, a, a new world f- for everyone. It's just so beautiful. I, let me just take, we're so close to finishing, and I need to let people know that um, you will be in our area February the 2nd and uh, 1st and 2nd. Uh, there's a conference, I Can Do It conference, a 2014 San Jose conference. And it's going to be I'm looking at, at my schedule. Oh, it is. Oh, it's in, I'm in San Jose. <laughs> That's right. You yeah. are, and we're, we're going to see you there. Um, it's the San Jose Center for Performing Arts, and we really look forward to having you in our area again. It's just wonderful. I also need to let people know that uh, Hay House Radio uh, has a radio exclusive with you, and you're on every Thursday from 11 until 12 noon. Um, uh, sharing all kinds of wonderful things for people. And so it would be really uh, a great idea to have people, you know, check it out. <laughs> sure. Uh, well, thank you. A, a lot of the ideas that we're touching on now, we have time to expand upon in much more detail in those one-hour segments. So thank you yeah. for that, for mentioning it. Oh, beautiful. And you're going to be in L.A. also, so you're going to be here in the West Coast. for. So you're going to be in L.A., I think, with, which weekend in February? I am. Uh, I'm in Los Angeles, the Conscious Life Expo, uh, on the February 8th and the 9th and the 10th, and I am in San Jose um, the week before that, the weekend before that, in uh, on the 31st and uh, of January and the 1st at Hay House. I can do it. Yeah, yeah. You know, walking. So on your on your radio station, do you talk about how to get Ken's um, uh, modulo? Uh, containers for growing vegetables. <laughs> you know, we when we when we do that segment, I do, and also I talk about it in the book. It's right there in the book, and all his contact information is is in the book. Oh, as great, well. great. Yeah, and the book is officially released January twenty eighth. You have probably seen more of my new book than I have. I haven't seen the the the, the actual finished product yet. Oh, so, okay. um, I'm, I'm glad you're enjoying it. <laughs> yes, and thank well, you for opening you everyone's up, eyes up. up. Come and say hello to me. Give me a hug when uh, when I see you at the conference, okay? okay. We will. All right. And I know our, our our time is ticking down. I want to just thank all of our listeners 
every one of you, I want to thank you for making time in your day for, for this program and this this kind of programming and for supporting Taz and Paula, I've known for years. And, and this kind of program is really important, community-based programming for where we are in our lives right now. So thank you all for all that you're doing to make us a better world and um, and uh, to create the, the kind of world I, I think we all really, really know is possible in our hearts. Mm. May your 2014 uh, be graced with ease and um, easy Blessings. flying no matter where you go. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us today.